to non-trade aspects in the relationship and have a more balanced relationship based on uh, not standing idly by while the Chinese regime engages in outrages such as the genocide in the Uyghur regions or unjustified expansion into the South China Sea, violation of promises not to militarize that that part of the world, and um, and its support of um, dictators throughout the third world who provide China with concessions in the Belt and Road program. One generation plants the trees, so the next can walk in the shade. That's a Chinese proverb that I used years ago when I was a lawyer in Toronto, talking to a business audience on Canada-China business opportunities. In fact, I was introducing China's ambassador to Canada at the time, where my law firm, all other law firms, consulting firms and resource companies were excited about the opportunity represented by China, a voracious and growing world market, a consumer, a company that, a country that made things much, uh, much more cheaper than Canada. There was such opportunity. It was a bounty. We had seen decade of Team Canada missions where politicians and business people plowed on planes and went to China for opportunities. So that was the only way the Canada-China relationship was looked at for many years, But in the last decade, we've seen it's not all commerce, it's not all trade, and that there's really areas where our values are in opposition, and the rise of China causes concern and potential security threats to Canada. So today on the Blue Skies Political Podcast, we're going to talk about that. One generation has planted the trees for more democratic rights in China, but those trees are not springing up the way we might have liked. Today, I'm joined with probably the leading expert on Canada-China relations in Canada. Dr. Charles Burton is a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. He's also a fellow at the European Values Center for Security Policy in Prague. He taught in the political science department at Brock University, specializing on comparative politics in China for many years. And he has on-the-ground knowledge, having been a counselor in the Canadian Embassy, to China between 1991-93 and 1998-2000. to Perhaps most importantly, he was one of early Canadian pioneers on Canada-China relations, being one of the 10 Canada-China scholar exchange programs, and he studied for four years at Fudan University in China before getting his PhD in 1987 from the University of Toronto. So there's no one that has a longer field view of Canada-China relations. So welcome to the Blue Skies, Dr. Burton. How have you seen the Canada-China relationship change and evolve since your days studying there to today? Well, it's been, as you say, a long journey for me. I, I first became interested in Chinese politics when I was at Lisgar Collegiate Institute um, in Ottawa, there was a, a shop on the way home from school called Progressive Books. And this would have been late 60s. They sold nothing but books from China and they were cheap. And so I was reading the Peking Review and China Reconstructs and hearing about uh, you know, the, the Soviet revisionists and the American imperialists and 
all of these things. Eventually, the men in the bookshop who were not in very good health, they looked rather tubercular to me, but they told me that they were members of the Chinese Communist Party Marxist-Leninist and suggested that perhaps I could form a, a Marxist revolutionary cell in Lisger Collegiate. Well, I was about 13, 14 at the time and was quite busy as the president of the Classic Society at Lisger and singing in my church choir. So I didn't, uh, I didn't set up the Marxist cell, but you know, it's been a lifelong interest for me and I've followed it um, closely since then. And as you say, I, I studied Chinese at Cambridge University and then subsequently um, became a student at Fudan University in Shanghai, where I studied the history of ancient Chinese thought in those years before opening and reform. When the opening and reform came in, this would be the late 70s, and I was living in China, there was terrific optimism on campus about the prospects of China becoming a democratic uh, nation based on respect for the rule of law, uh, free elections, an independent uh, judiciary, and all of those characteristics that you know we would hope for. And this was sustained through the period prior to Xi Jinping. At least Canada was told by our interlocutors in the Chinese foreign ministry that we should be patient, that you know undoing the Maoist revolution will take time, but eventually China will marketize its economy and democratize its politics, and that Canada could help with that. You know, we did a lot of programming when I was subsequently a diplomat in promoting um, training for judges and trying to establish a, a civil sector to try and encourage the values of citizenship in ordinary Chinese people and, and to... Um, um, engage in human rights dialogues at the senior level so that policymakers in China could understand how a democratic system worked. All of this programming, which took what they call good governance, democratic development, human rights programming, mostly through the Canadian International Development Agency, took up about a billion dollars of Canadian taxpayers' money. And it's clear that it has had no enduring impact on that regime. So while under Hu Jintao and Jiang Zemin and Deng Xiaoping before them, there's, we had some perception that China was moving towards becoming a responsible stakeholder in global affairs. And you know, in 1998, China signed the UN's International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, suggesting that they were moving towards elections and protections of freedom of expression and all of those things that that you know, make countries uh, democratic and respect the rights of citizens. All of that came to a crashing end when uh, the current strongman leader, um, chairman of the party, president of the state, chairman of the Central Military Commission, Xi Jinping, uh, came into power and explicitly through a document called Document 9, about a year after he assumed power in 2012, uh, banned all discussion in China in the media, in the universities of any Western political categories. Can't talk about constitutional law. You can't talk about independent judiciary. You can't talk about um, uh, the electoral process. None of these things, uh, human rights are, are banned from discussion. The idea that there are universal values to which you know, all of us as humans are entitled 
also banned from discussion. The only acceptable political categories are those of himself. And so subsequently, uh, I think based on a, an interpretation of history, which suggests that China's influence in the world has been suppressed by malevolent foreign powers in 2017 at the Chinese Communist Party Congress, Mr. Xi came up with his program of the, com the community of the common destiny of mankind. This is a community led by China, replacing the WTO, replacing the UN, establishing uh, a world that to which all powers would be subordinated to China as the middle kingdom and the global economy would be reoriented towards China through his very ambitious, what he calls the Belt and Road Program. So that's where we are at now. Very, uh, a highly authoritarian leader who has no desire to integrate into the norms of the international community, who is overseeing a system that ultimately is completely incompatible with that of Canada and our like-minded Western allies. Well, thank you. That was an incredible snapshot of kind of uh, a race through the evolution of China from the cautious optimism of the 70s, as you said, through to today. So when Canada was really growing its ambition with respect to trade in China, um, we I, I referred to the Team Canada missions, the late 90s into the early 2000s, there was this sense that um, and, and you said this earlier, there was this sense that reform is coming. There's going to be legal and, and human rights reforms. There'll be democratic reforms. But that was being hinted at in the 90s. But did all those things die in 1989 on Tiananmen Square, where the calls for more rapid reforms were, were met with tanks, were met with loss of life? Um, should we have been a little more um, wide-eyed about China's intentions after that. And you, you were in the embassy in the, in the 90s. Did we just keep leaning forward in terms of hoping that the reforms would come? And do you now feel that we were kind of being gamed uh, a little bit by, by the Chinese regime? Oh, absolutely. I mean, certainly uh, the 1989 Tiananmen massacre uh, was a moment in China's history that revealed the true nature of the regime, which is, you know, it's a military regime whose purpose is to maintain the elite privilege of the Chinese Communist Party. So they, you know, by that time, the regime was no longer committed to bringing about utopian communism, but was legitimated by this idea of nationalism and, um, and improving living standards, which, you know, they were able to to produce. Um, I think, you know, through the whole Team Canada experience under Jean Chrétien, um, you know, this was a response to the demands by Canadian business sector who, you know, promote Canadian prosperity and create business job opportunities in Canada to pressure the government to, to try and reestablish um, economic relations with China after the Canadian people felt such great repugnance at, at what the regime had done to those innocent students calling for democracy and freedom. So, you know, it's been a, a constant uh, tension within governments of, of uh, the Conservative Party and the Liberal Party between those who feel that 
our main priority in China relations should be the promotion of Canadian prosperity through investment and trade. And those who feel that that uh, we should be um, looking more to non-trade aspects in the relationship and have a more balanced relationship based on uh, not standing idly by while the Chinese regime engages in outrages such as the genocide in the Uyghur regions or unjustified expansion into the South China Sea, violation of promises not to militarize that that part of the world, and um, and its support of um, dictators throughout the third world who provide China with concessions in the Belt and Road Program, particularly in terms of geostrategic matters. You know, we're looking at over 90 ports around the world in which the Chinese state has investment, which could conceivably be converted to military use if, you know, when the time comes. So, you know, Chinese regime is sort of like playing a game of Go or where they, you know, they take the tiles one by one by one by one and eventually uh, surround the the opposing player and that's a game over. I I used to play a lot of Go uh, with my uh, classmates in the dorm at Fudan University and the total number of times I won was zero. I always felt it takes a long time to play that game, you know, it takes some hours. And I always felt that I maybe I was going to win this time, but in the end, I'm completely surrounded. But it happens late on that you realize what's going on. And I think with regard to China's, you know, geostrategic reach, we're just not conscious enough of, of what's really happening. And therefore, we're late to try and, and come up with measures to to counter it and protect the existing global order militarily and and politically, um, you know this this is something that certainly the Russian invasion of Ukraine has has made more clear to us about the nature of these regimes. But you know the allocation of resources, particularly military resources, to undo decades of of neglect um, is 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 a hard sell in 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 current circumstances in Canada. In other words, how much can we really do to defend our North? How much can we do to contribute to the Western Alliance in the Indo-Pacific? You know, I think Canada has a lot of hard decisions to make, but if we don't make the right decisions, I think in the years and decades ahead, uh, we'll, we'll really regret it as China continues to march on slowly and inexorably to, to achieving this um, plan of global domination. Yeah, and they they play the long game. Um, getting back a little bit, you know, you you said how Tiananmen in 1989 kind of exposed the true nature of of the regime and what they were willing to do to suppress uh, peaceful demands for democratic rights. In 2017, you talked about Document Nine. You've talked about Common Destiny. The state revealed its long term plan. To, to maintain that order, to resist further calls by changing the constitution, uh, the 19th People's Congress, President Xi being head of state for life, um, that, that constitutional change really doubled down on some of the worst aspects of Chinese communism. Can you speak to that for a moment and why some of their demands on their state-owned enterprises and companies to be extensions of their of their foreign affairs uh, operations uh, should should tell Canadians that decisions, whether it's on Huawei or other things, um, are not speculative. You just have to look at the Chinese constitution to see the risks. 
Yeah, I think that, you know, what we've seen under Xi Jinping has been a dismantling of any notion of collective leadership and concentration of power more and more into agencies directly under his president presidential leadership at the state level and and chairmanship at the party level. So, for example, the premier of the state council, Li Keqiang, has been more or less uh, neutered. You know, it used to be that the prime minister of China was a very important person in implementation of policy and that they and that the chairman was more of a, you know, behind the scenes, big, big picture thinker. And the economy was essentially the purview of the prime minister. That's no longer the case. And so you do have too much power in the strongman leader. And we know how this works in, in um, so many examples of, of these strongman leaders who are leaders for life, surrounded by sycophants, and more and more out of touch with the reality on the ground. And in the case of Xi and Putin, they spend a great deal of time you know, reading books about history and their place in the larger scheme of czars and emperors and they tend to lose touch with the aspirations of ordinary people. You know, this regime really doesn't reflect the values of Chinese people who, you know, based on my experience, and I have a lot of friends in China from my student days and afterwards, where people, you know, naturally yearn to be free. And they, you know, how many um, of my friends who go to a website and get a 404 error because of the great Chinese firewall are going to say, thank you so much, Chinese Communist Party, for not letting me read this. You know, it's nobody, right? But so you do have this, this, uh, this serious problem of these enormous ambitions, the regime being prepared to put a disordinate amount of the resources of the nation into these uh, megalomaniac global schemes and you know, and, and subversion of third world countries and development of infrastructure that serves China, while they're not responding to the needs of what is still a poor country. You know, China, it's a, it's a great country in terms of its overall economic heft, but in terms of the per capita income, it's way down, about halfway down the human development index. So it's not a, it's not a rich country at the individual level. It's a country which has a strongman leader who is prepared to use those resources to, to fulfill his ambitions in history, but not the interests of people in China in general. Now, let's explore that for a moment, because I really do think we'll talk about Belt and Road. We'll talk about South China Sea Islands. We'll, we'll talk about those things. But let's never lose sight of the, the communist regime in Beijing being very different than the billion plus people in China and it, our dislike or our concern or our, uh, you know, raising of uh, awareness of issues is about the political regime and not about the people and it's a rich and amazing ancient history. Um, I remember being in China, I'll probably never be invited back and I see you just uh, joined the latest list being banned from travel for to Russia, <laughs> uh, Charles. And so the individual family there, as you said, um, really wants the best for their children, want freedom. They are living within a system that doesn't allow them virtually any liberty. It reminds me of the Orwell line from 1984, the weariness of the cell adds to the vigor of the organism. They really see their individual rights as being subservient to the strength of the state, and they've now introduced a social credit and a tracking system much like out of 1984 to to 
to, in effect, have Big Brother always watching you. Can you talk for a moment about their social credit system and just the surveillance state that doesn't allow those people to even express concerns about suppression of their liberties? Oh, yes. I I mean, you know, this state um, is one of the least uh, equally distributed nations in the world. It's around there with Brazil. So in terms of, you know, the Communist Party's original purpose to serve the interests of workers, peasants, and soldiers, what you're really looking at is uh, an elite associated with the Communist Party, and people who are outside of that elite group really have very severe mobility issues. You can't, you know, you can't break into the into that communist uh, privilege unless you have uh, the qualifications to do so. So, so there are a lot of frustrated people who are frustrated by the nature of the system. In addition, as you say, they've outdone uh, 1984. You know, 1984, Winston Smith was able to go into the countryside and and walk away from from surveillance, or at least he thought he could. But in China, you know, it was a few years ago that I read a small item in the bottom of the People's Daily, which said that the Beijing municipal government had recently completed complete video surveillance of the entire city. So in other words, there is no alleyway that one can duck into to not be watched by the state. And this is, um, you know, increasingly sophisticated technology using facial uh, recognition so that they can tell who is where, when, who is meeting with who, and they have very sophisticated um, supercomputers that are able to correlate all sorts of information. You know, everything is now done digitally. All your purchases are, you know, cash is not very much used in China. Everything that you that you would be looking at on the internet, um, every conversation that you'd be having via WeChat through, um, you know, they're able to to take the audio and turn it into, into digital um, uh, information to monitor, it's it's completely dystopic, you know. And the, with the social credit system, if people have run afoul of the regime, let's say you started to put up postings on WeChat which suggested that the rule of Xi Jinping was anything less than perfect then you find yourself uh, with a low social credit score, everybody gets a score, and find that you cannot um, check into a hotel, that you can't buy an air ticket, you know, that you're, you're, you're disqualified from, from a lot of the functions of everyday life that, that uh, the people who keep their noses clean are able, to, are able to fulfill. I think the scary thing about it was that when I was in China, you know, you could still have a private conversation undetected or a private communication that, you know, you felt was was between friends. And while on the other hand, you know, at political study sessions, you had every Friday afternoon, you could express your support for the politics of the time. Those days are over. There is no escape from the in, enormously comprehensive digital surveillance that's available to China that is developing more and more every day. And, you know, and that's why we really can't have Huawei in Canada because of the knowledge it would give the Chinese state of our critical infrastructure and the ability for China to download even more databases of use to them than they have been able to do so far, which has been quite a lot, actually. Yeah, and and we've talked about the positioning of China to sort of dominate the world order and to their foreign policy objectives have been to literally create all roads leading to Beijing, Belt and Road, uh, have 
uh, smaller states be subservient due to infrastructure investments or, or uh, state uh, support for initiatives. So, but the domestic policy priority through social credit, through the suppression of rights is really to prevent the larger impoverished class from ever criticizing or, or overthrowing the small ruling elite. So their domestic policy priority is really suppression of potential rebellion. Would that be fair to say? Yes, I think that if Chinese people felt there was a possibility of becoming free, that they would choose it. But under current situation, you know, Xi Jinping has been so successful in suppressing opposition. Um, you know, he has these anti-corruption campaigns that are able to take off anybody that looks like they might, um, you know, want to challenge his unassailed position. That um, that uh, there are no, you know, the equivalent of Václav Havel or Lech Walesa inside or outside China that people could rally around as being a an alternative to to this uh, current regime. So, you know, when the day comes that that he um, uh, loses power, if something goes wrong, you know, right now there's certainly a, a lot of concern in China over the zero COVID policy that has allowed the state to imprison people in their homes for, you know, weeks at a time. Um, when he does fall from power, what will be the alternative? You know, I don't see it as a sort of stable transition to a democratic regime because there, there doesn't seem to be any, any capacity for that waiting in the wings. It's more likely that we would see a, an even more nationalistic, fascistic, military-based regime replace the Chinese Communist Party and, and possibly engage in you know, adventurous activities like an ill-advised um, invasion of Taiwan. So, you know, when you look at the situation, it, it's really very concerning because we don't see any, um, you know, at least we don't see any way out. Whether there are forces in China, in the military or elsewhere that we don't know about who have a different vision and want to create a, a nation that, that would trade fairly and reciprocally and abide by the norms of international governance, which of course would be enormously beneficial for China and the world, uh, we don't. We don't know if those people exist, but there's certainly no evidence of them. Yeah, and and Taiwan is the model that they don't want uh, many folks on the mainland to to really view because there there is a textbook of the the path taken um, by uh, you know after the revolution of an increasingly democratic, well functioning, wealthy, sophisticated state that could really be what what China's long-term future could be if there was more reform, if there was more of a willingness. Um, so in recent months, a lot of commentators have said the West's relative inaction with respect to Ukraine, certainly Canada and our allies are, are stepping up with aid and commitments, but NATO is not yet engaged. We're, we're seeing increasing aggression from Putin. Is that showing... China and the regime in Beijing that their plans for Taiwan can be accelerated. Do you think this, there's more risk of an invasion of Taiwan now, given what's happening in, in Ukraine? Yes, I do. I mean, I, certainly, as you say, Taiwan is an enormous threat to China because it's such a successful and prosperous democracy while maintaining 
its cultural norms. So, you know, it, 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 it's, uh, it's in a lot of ways, it's more Chinese than China in terms of its respect for those traditional norms of, you know, family values and, and, uh, and respect for, for um, elders and so on that, that Confucius taught. But it's also got, you know, uh, uh, an independent judiciary, a free and fairly elected government. I've, I've been doing international election monitoring in Taiwan the last two elections, and those are elections that are as clean as, as our own, uh, you know, and the, and the government has programs which are very similar to those of our government, you know, uh, respect for gender rights, environment, climate change, um, the middle class, um, and respect for the democratic process. So, you know, Taiwan poses an enormous threat to China because as people in China understand that this is a possibility, it could cause them to question the Chinese Communist Party's claim that only the Chinese Communist Party is consistent with traditional Chinese norms and an extension of China's glorious history. So uh, what I think there are two aspects to this. One is that the West's inability um, you know, to seriously um, uh, respond to Ukraine and, you know, the likelihood that come winter when um, Germany needs energy, that there could be some kind of backdown of uh, the democratic resistance to the horrendous Russian invasion sends a signal to China that, you know, we could go into Taiwan and despite all the threats, um, it'll work out. The other aspect is that because Ukraine is leading to more um, Western concern over the Indo-Pacific, you know, strengthening of the quad, um, uh, the development of the Australia-UK-US alliance, the, the Indo-Pacific economic um, uh, um, program, that, that China might see that they have to go in and take Taiwan before we get our act together in a way which would lead to defense. And moreover, you know, if Russia becomes subservient to China because Russia needs to sell its energy and mineral resources to China to maintain some degree of, of economic stability in that country, that, that Russia could then possibly support China in a military action in the region. So, you know, it's, it's, Essentially, I'm afraid to say from my perception, bad news all around. I don't see any optimistic scenario. The best we could hope for is the status quo. And I think it's unlikely that Xi Jinping wants to just, you know, stay still. I think he wants to make his legacy, the, what they refer to as the return of Taiwan to the embrace of the motherland. Mm -hmm. And the West's position with respect to Taiwan can best be described as the U.S.'s strategic ambiguity, meaning mm -hmm. we will support and we equip and we're uh, an ally to Taiwan. But President Biden had one press conference where he seemed to step a little further and be less ambiguous with respect to, yes, we would respond to an invasion, but then officials quickly stepped back and added ambiguity again to it. Um, what is strategic ambiguity? Did, did that work uh, 10 years ago, but it doesn't work post-2017? Is it time for these, these burgeoning groups like Quad, AUKUS, and, and more strategic collaboration in the region? Is it time to have a different approach with respect to 
uh, defense or support for Taiwan? Oh, absolutely. I mean, long past time, I would say. And the distressing thing, of course, as we all know, is that, you know, if you look at something like AUKUS, uh, the UK is not an Asia-Pacific nation. Canada is. In fact, Canada is actually closer to China at, at one point than Australia is. So, you know, why is Canada not part of this? Why does the US feel that we are not a reliable partner in, you know, that, the Quad, the, the Indo-Pacific Economic Programme, which has 13 countries in it, but no Canada, you know, that is a cause for concern to me. I think that we should be uh, much more assertive in, in um, supporting our like-minded allies in defense, uh, particularly of this region. But, um, you know, I, I, think, I think in general, um, situation has changed. Can we allow Ukraine to be take become a, a subordinate Slavic state of Russia in, in accordance with Mr. Putin's uh, plan for for a re restoration of some sort of Russian empire? Um, you know, if it's once Ukraine goes, won't it be Moldova next? Is there any notion that he would just stop at Ukraine? And similarly with China, if they succeed in Taiwan, will this make China much more aggressive in other areas of the world where China sees a desire to? to bring these states into China's overall geostrategic plan to isolate the West and, and lead ultimately to our, you know, to the U.S. alliance collapsing and, and, uh, and China being able to, to um, uh, assume authority that we cannot challenge. I mean, you already see it in the UN. You know, if you have um, a Western-led initiative of, say, 30 or 40 countries condemning the Uyghur genocide, China can rally twice the number, including Islamic states, to suggest that China's policies towards the Uyghurs are exemplary and, and uh, any criticism is, is a result of, of malign Western schemes. So, mm -hmm. I mean, that's the reality is they're already, um, you know, getting the edge on us in a lot of aspects in, in, in the third world. And we really um, should have a much greater sense of urgency about this and be prepared to put the resources into trying to, to effectively challenge China in these areas. Yeah, as you alluded to earlier with the, the game Go, it's a bit of the, the frog in the boiling pot. We don't really even know that the water is boiling and we are well behind acting. Another sign of the, of the this sort of strongman dictator is that control of the near abroad. Um, you alluded to Moldova, Baltics, you know, some of those states are, are seeing Ukraine for what it is. Taiwan, and then of course, the South China Sea. Let's touch on that, because I don't think enough Canadians really know about the militarization, uh, about the islands. Um, and why is it important to the world? Well, 70% of global trade at one point will go through uh, that international waterway. Talk for a second about what China has been doing there and why it poses a, a global supply chain risk, which is already stretched very thin because of zero COVID and, and, and other problems. It has been, you know, quite a saga. China claims the, the South China Sea is essentially a Chinese lake. So they have this nine line um, border where essentially China you know, takes, believes that it's Chinese seas right up to very close to the borders of countries roundabout like Indonesia and, and the Philippines. 
And then China started to, to claim, you know, various reefs and rocky outcroppings uh, in the South China Sea and made a commitment to the U.S. president that they would not be uh, militarizing those. China then violated those commitments by massive programs of land reclamation. And, you know, we can see from the satellite imagery, airstrips and other port facilities have been put on what used to be international waters that, you know, and, and, and rocks and reefs that were, that were uh, submerged much of the time. So China has developed essentially a military basis in the South China Sea. You combine that with China's increasing um, aircraft carrier program. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is bad news for the countries roundabout and, and for Taiwan. Taiwan, incidentally, you know, the people in Taiwan by public opinion polls do not identify as Chinese. They, they believe that they are Taiwanese and that uh, they have, you know, there, there is essentially zero support in Taiwan for, for Taiwan becoming a province of the People's Republic of China. So, you know, so this is all done against the will of the people uh, living in Taiwan and living in those countries that previously had regarded the South China Sea waters near their coasts as their sovereign territory and traditional fishing grounds and so on. So, you know, from that, that point of view, um, I think China has a plan and it's really a plan to, to, to subvert the independent political authority of, of nations around China. And, you know, if eventually, I suppose they, they hope to make South Korea into a kind of Chinese colony and they, you know, they support the, the horrendous uh, and dangerous regime in North Korea. And, and I think all over Southeast Asia, they just believe that, that, there should be governments in those nations who want to serve China's economic rise by providing uh, natural resources and other uh, other products to to China for China to to develop and 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 strengthen its overall position around the world. So, you know, this this is a big concern for those nations. But in the absence of confidence in the support of the Western alliance, they are reluctant to challenge China by themselves. In other words, if we, you know, could give those countries assurance that we will defend you militarily against China, that would change the political dynamic in them. As long as we maintain this strategic ambiguity, they're really not sure that, that uh, they can, that they can challenge China and maintain their democratic systems. And it tends to, to strengthen the hands of elements in those countries that, that are pro pro China and supported by Beijing. Mm -hmm. And we've already seen this play out in light of an uh, international agreement when it comes to Hong Kong. The one country, two systems, uh, of course, had a, had a transition period to allow and safeguard some of the democratic rights of Hong Kongers and have ha having had family live there and had, having dealt with many people from Hong Kong who have since relocated to Canada, they viewed themselves proudly as, as Hong Kongers and and really resisted what they saw as Beijing just usurping the one country, two systems. But that's exactly what has has happened. And now, you know, are the conditions and rights in in Hong Kong almost similar to those of of Chinese citizens in in Beijing now, Charles? Well, yeah, I, I mean, Mr. Xi is promising to go to Hong Kong to celebrate the twenty fifth anniversary of the reversion of sovereignty um, from Britain in nineteen ninety seven, and 
you know, I, I think that the people who would be opposing his visit are either in jail or uh, abroad. You know, that's really what it's come down to. And there is and no, no freedom. There's no, yeah, there's no newspapers. No freedom of the press either. left. Um, yeah. No freedom of assembly. You know, the people in Hong Kong used to have a massive rally of hundreds of thousands in Victoria Park every June 4th mm-hmm. to commemorate the suppression of the 1989 democracy demonstration. That's not going to happen anymore. And so certainly I think China wants to sub- bring Taiwan, uh, bring Hong Kong into a status as a, as a middle-sized Chinese city based on, on PRC norms. The tragic thing is that, you know, when the Sino-British uh, Joint Declaration was, was signed in 1984, uh, China and Britain asked Canada and other countries to endorse that declaration when it was lodged with the UN. But now China says that the declaration has no meaning and Canada doesn't seem to feel that we have any obligation to, to our earlier commitment to, to help uphold that. And the British, unfortunately, have also more or less abrogated their responsibility to people in Hong Kong. They, they have um, changed some, some immigration laws to facilitate people who were in Hong Kong for 97 to come to Britain. Canada has not done enough to allow people who are at risk in Hong Kong to get here, in my opinion. But, um, you know, I, frankly, uh, as much as I, I regret to say it, and I'm sure many of my friends, Hong Kong friends here in Canada would regret that, I think it's game over for Hong Kong. But the other issue is if things get bad in Hong Kong, what about the 300,000 Canadian passport holders, or at least China refers to them as Canadian passport holders, I think we would refer to them as Canadian citizens, that China refuses to acknowledge are in fact foreign nationals or extend consular protections to them. You know, how like, why is Canada not doing more for our Canadians who are stuck in Hong Kong and possibly under threat who should be protected because they're, they're our Canadians? Yeah, uh, it reminds me, my friend Michael Chong would often say, Aaron, it's the 10th province. There's more Canadian citizens in Hong Kong than there are in Prince Edward Island, for example. <laughs> yeah, very true. So I, I wrote Minister Freeland on this years ago, asking for a plan and pledging joint support for a plan for our citizens there which at the time even included friends and family. Um, and there is no preparation. And I think you're right. It's, it's been very sad to see uh, one country, two systems, uh, some uh, quaint notion of the past and the days of the Tiananmen uh, marking that anniversary, the umbrella protests. We've seen a steady erosion there going back to arrest of booksellers, extraditions by stealth of people to the mainland. The West has to realize the more we do not act, the more it emboldens that. So we've talked about the near abroad for China. Let's let's get into the Belt and Road Initiative for a second, because I think some Canadians that follow, follow foreign policy may be aware of it. But I don't think they know the scope. And just at recent G7 meetings, uh, the G7 countries are are pledging sort of global infrastructure works and partnerships to to rival it. But is it too late? You've already mentioned 60 ports. How how much wealth and treasure has gone into this initiative by Beijing? And, and what is the Belt and Road Initiative geopolitically? Well, it, you know, it's designed to create infrastructure, um, you know, uh, belts, which are ports from you know, place to place that all 
that all would lead to Chinese shipping being able to get natural resources from um, Africa and South America to China, and then um, and then the creation of highways and railways going all the way to to uh, Europe. So you know that's the ultimate ambition is to create this massive network that China can use to to um, obtain the materials that it needs. There are, I mean, there are a lot of concerns. For example, in the last budget, much to my surprise, actually, I, I spoke in Parliament uh, in, in the parliamentary committee about my concerns over this. The Liberal government has said that they're committing money to um, uh, develop uh, Canada's indigenous mining of critical minerals, so that you know we won't be subject to Chinese economic co coercion with regard to the critical minerals that are essential to our high tech future. But you know there are all sorts of other areas in which China is able to get dominance. Um, a lot of it is loans. Um, countries that have been unable to repay the loans have been making concessions like 99-year leases on port facilities to Chinese uh, interests that you know could potentially lead to uh, China using them as submarine bases or whatever over those 99 years. And and it also um, uh, makes those governments subordinate to China's political programming because they're dependent on the Chinese economic inputs to complete those, those projects. The terms of the Belt and Road Agreements are not made public. And so um, one assumes that China can pull the money at any time. So if a nation was to ally or, or support the West in our military challenge of China by, say, providing um, uh, facilities for air bases or, or ports that, that uh, China would then uh, say, well, we're taking, we're taking the Belt and Road funding away from you and causing economic devastation. And, uh, you know, the, the Chinese funding, including under the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which, you know, Canada, unfortunately, has participated in, comes with very little in the way of transparency and accountability. So it does strengthen um, corrupt strongman leaders throughout the world uh, against the, um, you know, the possibility of democratic change in those countries and more Western-oriented regimes. So China really, as you say, the, they get it coming and going, you know, as an integrated party, military, um, industrial um, complex, they're able to, to use their state investment to also fulfill military purposes. And you know, we see that with Huawei. We we saw that with the foiled attempt by China to Shandong Gold to purchase a, a mine up in the north that had an outlet to the Northwest Passage and was dangerously close to a NORAD uh, facility. You know that 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 unlike us, they act in a beautifully coordinated way. You know, I mean, for for Canada. Um, you know, our government would not provide information to, say, uh, the BlackBerry company about competitive bids by their rivals or, or what the latest technology Samsung is coming up to. But in China, that's simply expected that the state will support the business enterprise, the business enterprises will support the purposes of the state. And they've even most recently encoded that in law, which requires all Chinese citizens to to support um, intelligence and security agencies if asked. So, you know, we are, we, we are just being, um, I guess, uh, outclassed yeah. in terms of the sophistication of their um, global engagement because they, 
they have everything nicely, uh, nicely put together and we, and, and our system, um, that's just not possible. So how do you, you know, how do you meet them on their own terms when they're, when they're dealing in a much different way from, from conventional state to state relations? Yeah, we saw that, uh, of course, many Canadians became aware of this through the two Michaels situation and Madame Meng, who in many ways was like Chinese royalty being the daughter of the founder of Huawei, one of their most important state-owned enterprises. Mm-hmm. But the the enormity of this state influence on every aspect of the large corporate players. Uh, I remember speaking to China's ambassador to Canada many years ago when I was a new foreign affairs critic and expressing concern about Huawei and other things. And he would say to me, and I'm sure you've heard this, well, Canadian government used to own Air Canada and uh, the provincial government's own uh, hydro and other, these are just like crown corporations. <laughs> and I said, our, our crown corporations don't go around the world buying others and using the state to steal secrets and other things. It, it, it is really comical to see how they try and compare it to the Western context. But is this why, you know, the decision on Huawei not being part of our 5G infrastructure was, was needed and years late in that we're essentially allowing a the Chinese state to indirectly build out one of the critical parts of our, of our nation's uh, internet of things uh, economy and, and were our allies looking at us as the weak link in the five eyes because we were so late on Huawei? It's it's very troubling. Um, and again, it comes down to the systemic incompatibility. But, you know, if you look at, at Canadian telecommunications companies, of course, they don't have a mandate to defend Canada's national security. <laughs> they have a mandate to provide, you know, the best cell service at the cheapest price. And needless to say, the Huawei equipment is, you know, priced 30% or so lower than the comparable Scandinavian product by uh, Ericsson and, and Nokia. So, of course, they, of course, our companies want that stuff. You know, it, it's, it makes sense from their corporate point of view. And, and the very long delay in the decision, you know, during which um, Huawei sold $700 million worth of hardware and software solutions to Canadian companies means that now that we're demanding that that it be taken out will lead to higher costs for consumers for cell phone service without question you know the money's got to come from somewhere so i i I do think that you know the chinese state's use of economic coercion with regard to the our process of of um, investigating whether the u.s extradition request for the huawei cfo meng wanzhou is justified in canadian law which was you know the the arbitrary hostage diplomacy against Michael Kovrick and Michael's favor, the, you know, the spurious claims that, that Canadian canola seed exports uh, were inconsistent with international standards. And because our canola seeds were evidently, according to the Chinese, full of um, contaminants in the dockage, the non-seed portion, whereas none of our other canola seed customers have had Mm -hmm. complaints about our product. And then, you know, some, some attempt to affect Quebec, um, meet on similar grounds just shows how coordinated they can be that you know that it, that if the Chinese state decides that they want to pressure the government to to violate our our rule of law and 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 spring Ms. Meng that they can they can they can stop uh, agricultural commodity uh, 
um, exports Canada just doesn't have that sort of capacity. And the other area that's of great concern is the universities where we've found out um, through the Australian Strategic Policy Institute that there have been quite a few People's Liberation Army researchers working in sensitive areas in Canadian universities who entered Canada under false pretenses. They did not reveal their, their army affiliation. But, you know, the universities have a mandate for the creation and dissemination of knowledge, not for national security. And so if the Chinese, you know, are providing funds um, and providing researchers from the university's point of view, all good. But we don't have any capacity to tell a university you cannot engage in this exchange with China because we have concerns over the, the potential risk to Canada's national security of dual use technologies being developed in your institution, being used by China for potentially hostile purposes against us. So, you know, these are issues which um, have been ongoing, and I don't think that we're doing enough about it, um, seriously. I mean, CSIS going to see university presidents and telling them this is not good is not actually leading to a reduction of this sort of activity. So, you know, I, there are just a lot of issues where Canada just doesn't seem to be who's smartened up enough to, to what's really going on or, or that there's not enough concern on the part of the political class to, to, you know, to give it a priority to, to enact legislation that will counter it. You know, Charles, it's almost like we have a leader that admires the basic dictatorship in China. Uh, oh, wait a minute. Uh, I try not to be too partisan on this podcast. So let, <laughs> let me also take back because, you know, I think for, for some listeners that may not be aware of the scope of issues we've talked about in China, um, subsidizing and paying economic warfare, whether on canola, subsidizing some of their IT and, and steel and aluminum transshipment and, and uh, the economic warfare. They're building islands on rocky outcroppings in the South China Sea. They're on the moon. They are funding network of Confucius Institutes, teachers, agents. They built up faster than pretty much anyone outside of wartime, a blue water Navy with the latest aircraft carrier being uh, really almost fifth generation uh, equivalent. How can China afford all this? Because we also hear about the cost of zero COVID, their basically confinement of millions of their own citizens, their supply chain challenges, their is uh, ghost cities and, and skyscrapers that are built to just keep people building and keep the economy moving. China almost needs double-digit growth rates to keep fueling this Beijing communist machine. How do they do it? And it, 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 are they sputtering? And is there an ability for the West to to challenge them on this front, much like Reagan did with the Soviet Union and almost outspent them with, with the strategic defense and other things so that their state capacity fell apart. It, it, is China, is, is, is that something that is a possibility? They're gonna start sputtering on this incredible massive buildup of surveillance, state control, belt road. Where does it end? Yeah, I, I, I think you make a, an excellent point there which is that there is a latent assumption uh, in Canada that China will just continue to grow and grow and grow and grow, that, that it's inevitable. And I think there was a, a cabinet minister that said, in effect, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. So, you know, they accept the Chinese rhetoric that the U.S. is a nation in decline and that China, 
will inevitably become the dominant power on the planet and therefore Canada should hedge our bets, not get too supportive of the United States because uh, you know China wouldn't like it. So, and, and certainly the Chinese government provides you know, some quite strong incentives to people in politics, particularly in their post-career phase to enrich themselves through associations with uh, Chinese enterprise. And we see quite a lot of examples of that. There's no evidence that anything is illegal, um, but we don't have any legislation comparable to Australia's Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme Act to find out if people who are in positions of public trust have received uh, benefits from a foreign power that would uh, put them in a conflict of interest. So I, I do think that, that, you know, certainly Chinese people, when they are suffering themselves economically, who watch the news, China's you know, development of beautiful um, dams and stadiums in foreign countries, you know, may wonder why is our government not using our resources to improve the situation for people living in, in relative poverty in, in China itself. And particularly with regard to social programs, you know, China just doesn't have um, pensions and health insurance and, and free uh, education that, uh, you know, that is the expectation of, of uh, developed uh, nations today because they're putting so much resources into the global expansion. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think that it could come all crashing down, but we have no, we don't know enough about what's, what's going on in the Chinese economy to genuinely assess how grave the crisis is or what will happen if the zero COVID policy, which has led, of course, to considerable disruption of production, um, leads to genuine hardship of a significant portion of the Chinese population. Yeah, and there's been several commentators. One I heard recently, Peter Zahan, with his book, The End of the World is Just the Beginning, but also uh, Daryl Bricker and John Ibbotson with their book, Empty Planet. Demographics are also a huge risk to China mm -hmm. long-term, not just this massive buildup of, of state and expense. Um, their one-child policy um, has, has literally led to a hollowing out uh, and an aging of China in a, in a vastly more pronounced way than than Japan and, and what we've seen in terms of the stagnant Japanese economy, is that also a huge risk to them is that essentially they're becoming older and older and will not be able to fuel this growth rate through, through domestic demographic need and growth. Yeah, I think that um, I think it's about 2050 that the estimate will be that there'll be more senior citizens than, than, you know, younger people in China. They, I mean, they, the one child policy turns out to have, been a disaster in retrospect you know it was based on on false projections now they want to encourage um, women to have uh, three children but you know the this isn't happening it people are not prepared to have children the rate of of um, of uh, of fertility on every woman is is low marriage rates are low you know, part of it is systemic. It's expensive to have a child in China. You have to pay for their education and everything else. There's no child allowance. And so people, even though the state wants them to have children and the state is even restricting access to abortion to try and, and increase the, um, the number of, uh, of children to succeed. Um, but we're seeing, um, you know, a demographic disaster on the way and China does not have a policy of um, immigration. So, 
you know, they're not going to be bringing in people from other countries to try and, you know, younger people from other countries to, to uh, pay the pensions of the older people, such as I'm benefiting from here in Canada as, as someone who's, uh, you know, getting on in years. So, you know, from that point of view, it doesn't look at all good. And one doesn't see any prospect of changing it. You just can't, you just can't turn this demographic uh, crisis around in any easy way. And I, I think it's even for Xi Jinping, it's impossible for him to force women to have large families to try and uh, make up for the shortfall. And, and that's a, a demographic trend that happens as countries move up on the development yeah. index, as there's more access to education, equality between uh, genders, it, you will see a declining birth rate. And so we've, we've talked about certainly some risks to Canada and the, the Western democratic uh, nations. We've talked about some risks to China with their massive build out, their their quest for global domination, for lack of a better expression, and just the immense cost of that apparatus to fuel that and their own demographic challenges. So as one of our leading commentators, Charles, what do you think Canada should do in the next few years to lim limit or mitigate risks uh, and work with our allies to contain some of this um, bad action from China, whether it, it's in human rights sphere with Uyghurs, which you mentioned, um, they're near abroad, South China Sea. Do we need to pound the table to get into AUKUS, work with the Quad? What policies should we be uh, really pursuing to contain uh, this this ambition from China, which is really contrary to to our national interests. Well, I think first of all we have to look to malign activities by the Chinese regime here in Canada. You know there are significantly more um, Chinese diplomats on the foreign affairs list of accredited diplomats than any other country. You know why is this? I mean, quite a lot more than the United States, um, multiple times that of Britain. You just have to count the number of accredited diplomats across the the embassy, Chinese embassy and consulates in Canada, and you see that they have an awful lot of people here. The question is, why do they have so many diplomats in Canada? You know, are they working less efficiently than other nations? I don't think so. You know, their their immigration process is subcontracted to non diplomats. And so one suspects that a lot of those um, people with diplomatic passports uh, from the People's Republic of China in Canada are engaged in United Front Work Department activities, engaging uh, persons of Chinese origin in Canada, or um, indeed um, espionage agents. So you know, I think we have to be much, much uh, firmer on, on ensuring that the people that China has in Canada are in fact not engaging in functions which are not consistent with their diplomatic function, um, you know, that would be a, a starter, like clear out the spies and the, and the harassers, because, you know, why, why should we tolerate that? Just because it seems there's a perception in Ottawa that if we do crack down on these things, that, that uh, China will be unhappy and our Canadian businesses will lose market share in, in China, uh, for which there's actually no evidence. I, so I, I do think that that from that point of view, we do we do have like domestic work to do first, but I think also we need to defend our our north against um, China's perception that it's a near Arctic state which has ambitions to 
you know, to to be running through our waters and and developing port facilities and and um, uh, mines in our territory in collaboration, possibly with the Russians or maybe without collaboration with the Russians. You know, our our neglect of of northern defense is coming home to roost, and you know we really need to to have uh, a deep water port and submarines and all these incredibly expensive things that that uh, unfortunately we don't have up there um and and of course you, you know we've got to regain the support of the americans as a reliable ally in preserving the international rules-based order and there's no question china is the greatest challenge you know they always say russia is like very bad weather but china is like climate change you know we <laughs> we should be there uh, with the australians everywhere i mean we're a you know we're a bigger country and and we're closer to the united states and and we face a considerable challenge from china like everybody else and the idea that we can somehow row a, 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 a hoe a row in the middle between um, china and the united states or you know virtue signal our our support for for condemning china's international domestic human rights abuse and international activities but not actually you know walk the talk i guess um you know it's just completely unacceptable and so un-canadian that mm -hmm. that we are you know behind other powers in terms of our contribution to to trying to set things right and preserve the liberal democratic values and the and the international rules-based order which has served canada as a middle power so well since the second world war so of course you know i'm i've been pushing this stuff for a long time in the past conservative uh, party platform it contained many many important points that i would like to see revived and and implemented in the next government well thank you and and some of your writing and commentary was very helpful in forming our policy positions um, I was proud when our parliament, including reluctantly some most liberal MPs, uh, took a stand on calling the Uyghur genocide what it is. Um, we can talk about the tremendous opportunity with China economically, but people will be paying more so that we can ensure that there's no slave labor products so that we're not fostering uh, Chinese gaming of the World Trade Organization. You touched a, a lot of things on there. Uh, and in terms of influence operations, Charles, um, um, I'm going to refer our listeners to check out Willful Blindness, Sam Cooper's book, which outlines this uh, within the pandemic um, and, and beyond. I'm not going to get into the election and foreign interference, but, uh, um, you know, these things are happening in our country. And I think we have to clean up our own backyard and then start working with our allies on the broader issues globally. But the, the issue is so important that I'm glad we could dedicate a big discussion of how we've got here and some of the big picture issues. But I think I've often said China and Canada's relationship and our allies' relationship with China is the foreign policy challenge of the next century. Um, we have to play catch up in the Arctic in, in, in terms of intellectual property and trade rules and a whole range of things. But the first thing is we have to let Canadians know what are the risks, what are the opportunities, and where we have to safeguard our interests and our values. And I think you were a perfect guest to have a really good conversation on that. So thank you for your continued work, Charles. And a great pleasure to speak with you. And uh, thank you for being a, a wonderful interviewer. 
you know, I, I get interviewed by a lot of people, but Aaron Hotel was the best. Ah, well, I might steal that quote. Um, um, you know, Murray Sinclair said, I have millions of listeners. Uh, I told Murray that I was talking with him on reconciliation. I'm going to tell people that Murray Sinclair says I have millions of listeners. <laughs> so Charles Burton says that I'm uh, the best interviewer. I will take any compliments in this day and age. But thank you, Charles, for blue skying this important issue with me. And for our listeners, as I've said, um, Charles has done a lot of writing on this issue. Uh, Sam Cooper, the book Willful Blindness, uh, uh, Claws of the Panda. There's there's a number of books that highlight specifically challenges Canada faces. And I think we have to work on this uh, and do so respectful of the rich and ancient Chinese history and how the the the, the people suffering the most from communism are small, poor families in China that have literally every aspect of their life controlled by a state for the benefit of a small few. And so I think it's important for more Canadians to become aware. If you have any comments on this podcast or anything you've heard on the Blue Skies Political Podcast, send me a note, uh, recommend or write a review, and please share the Blue Skies Political Podcast. Our goal is to have informed, intelligent discussion on important policy issues without too much partisan noise. We're covering topics that are critical for Canada's future. I always say, the Air Force guy in me says, CAVU, ceiling and visibility are unlimited for Canada in the skies ahead. But we have to be mindful of the risks and the storm clouds on the horizon if we really want to thrive as a country. So thank you for blue skying this important topic with me today. Send me a note and please rate and share this podcast. I'm Aaron O'Toole, the Member of Parliament for Durham. This has been the Blue Skies Political Podcast. 